0: So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com.
1: Between you and the internet stands a company. Maybe it is called Verizon or AT&T or Comcast or Cox. That last piece of the pipeline connecting you to the world, it belongs to them, your internet service provider. And in that inescapable relationship. What rights belong to you? What rights belong to them? Net neutrality is the idea, as most people understand it, that ISPs are practically public utilities and should have almost no right to limit where you can go on the internet or the speed at which content creators can get their data to you. They cannot, for example, make you pay more ...to connect with Facebook or shut you out of Facebook altogether. They can't make Netflix pay extra to move its video at a decent speed... ...a cost that would surely get passed on to you. The Obama administration liked net neutrality and made it the rule. The Trump administration repealed it. Its main argument being that net neutrality is a soft idea... ...it is unnecessary regulation and it is detrimental to innovation... We think this sounds like it has the makings of a debate, so let's have it. Yes or no to this statement, preserve net neutrality all data is created equal. I'm John Donvan, and I stand between two teams of two. As always, our debate will go in three rounds, and then our audience here at the Northwestern Pritzker School of Law in Chicago will choose the winner. And if all goes well, as always, civil discourse will win as well. Let's meet the team first arguing for the motion, starting, ladies and gentlemen, with Mitchell Baker. Hi, Mitchell. Welcome to Intelligence Squared. You are executive chairwoman of Mozilla, the maker of Firefox. Uh, Mitchell, you are often described as an advocate for the open web and open source. But in a sentence or two, what exactly does that mean?
2: Well, the open, uh, open source is a really collaborative and sharing development practice. And the open Internet is, as we know, the Internet that we've been accustomed to. And I'm drawn to them because they have opportunity for all of us.
1: Okay, thanks very much. And can you please tell us who your partner is tonight?
2: Yes, my partner is the mighty Tom Wheeler.
1: Ladies and gentlemen, Tom Wheeler. So, Tom, you were chairman of the FCC under President Obama. It was during your tenure that net neutrality regulations were put into place. Um, You have also been president of the National Cable Television Association. When President Obama uh, announced your nomination to the FCC, he said you were the Bo Jackson of telecom. For those who don't know, who is Bo Jackson,
0: and what did Obama mean by that? <laughs> Bo Jackson, uh, the only uh, professional athlete to play both professional football and professional baseball and be an all-star in both. However, I do think the president was probably engaged in a little over-the-top rhetoric. <laughs> <What is that? laughs> All right,
1: thank you. Again, the team, ladies and gentlemen, arguing for the motion. And we have two debaters arguing against it. Please first welcome Nick Gillespie. Nick, welcome back to Intelligence Squared, one of our favorite debaters, your editor-at-large of Reason, co-host of the Reason podcast, uh, widely seen as one of the foremost libertarians uh, in in America. You are, quote-unquote, almost certainly the only journalist to have interviewed both Ozzy Osbourne and Nobel laureates like Milton Friedman and Vernon Smith. And recently you sat down with current FCC chairman Ajit Pai. What's the
3: theme that unifies all of these people? I I didn't know this going in, but they have all bitten the heads off of bats. (laughs) (laughs) We did not Um, know that till this moment. uh, Now now it's out. (laughs) Nick, tell us please who is your partner. Uh, My uh, partner is Michael Katz.
1: Ladies and gentlemen, Michael Katz. Michael, you are our economist. You're an economics professor at UC Berkeley. Uh, During the Clinton administration, you were also at the FCC as chief economist. You served at the Justice Department uh, at Berkeley. But we have a question for you that maybe a lot of people in this room will relate to
4: or not. Can you remember the very first time you had an interaction with the Internet? Barely, because it was over 30 years ago. But it was um, using something called Gopher. And so I'm someone who can testify to you the value of the web and how incredibly more convenient it is and powerful than it was when it started. So it's not just about the underlying infrastructure and the Internet. It's about what goes on top of it as well.
1: Okay, thank you, Michael Katz. And again, the team arguing against the motion. And so to the debate itself, we move on to round one. Round one are opening statements by each debater in turn. Speaking up first for the motion, in support of the motion, preserve net neutrality, all data is created equal, former FCC Chairman Tom Wheeler. Ladies and gentlemen, Tom Wheeler.
0: So thank you, ladies and gentlemen, and um, we're here to urge you to support the proposition for three straightforward reasons. Number one, the internet is the most powerful and pervasive platform on the planet, but Second point, when we go to access the Internet, the company that provides that service is typically a local monopoly. When we were doing our rulemaking, we found that three-quarters of American households had at most one choice when it came to high-speed broadband connectivity. And that leads to the third point you've got a very important and crucial asset in the Internet. The access to it is not competitive. Therefore, there needs to be rules. You know, Michael was talking about the, uh, the age of the Internet. It's actually about 35 years old. And for the first 25 years, net neutrality reigned. We all remember the... Screeching modems that you had to plug into your phone jack in your house to connect your computer to the telephone network to get to the internet? Well, that telephone network was a common carrier. And that meant that it had to take whoever came to it and deliver them to their destination. That's an important point that we'll talk a lot about tonight. This concept of common carrier, which says, first come... First serve, non discriminatory access. And it's only been in the last eight or ten years that this whole debate about net neutrality has developed because when the new digital networks came along, those who owned those networks said, oh, wait a minute, this is different. 2007, under a Republican FCC, Comcast decided to degrade the video coming in over the internet that competed with their cable service. The FCC said, no, 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 no. Comcast took them to court and said to the court, hey, we can discriminate because we're not a common carrier. And the court said, you're right, and overruled the FCC. In 2010, when my predecessor came out with the first open internet rule, Verizon sued went to the court, and the lawyer said to the judges, the reason why we are suing is we intend to discriminate. Should these local companies be allowed to discriminate in access to the most important network of the 21st century? And that's what the debate is about tonight. So because of the fact that we don't have a competitive market because of the fact that history says it worked early on and discrimination happened when it didn't exist. We urge you to strongly and enthusiastically support this resolution tonight. Thank you.
1: Thank you, Tom Wheeler. Our next debater will be opening against the motion, preserve net neutrality, all data is created equal. He is speaking against. Here is Nick Gillespie, editor-at-large of Reason. Ladies and gentlemen, Nick Gillespie.
3: You know, the first time I want to thank John and uh, IQ Squared for having me back. The first time that I debated in one of these, all I had to do was defend uh, drug dealers who wanted to put uh, vending machines in grammar schools, things like that. <laughs> Uh, And now it's like they've really made it much harder for me because somehow I have to support ISPs. Do any of you love your ISPs? No, right? I mean, we all hate these types of people. They're necessary evils, but they are businesses, and our lives are better because of the Internet, and they are not the problem here. And net neutrality is, in the word of Ajit Pai, it's a solution that won't work to a problem that doesn't exist. How many of you have had uh, major troubles of accessing any legal content online? Okay, nobody, right? We have a before, during, and after sequence now because the open uh, internet uh, ruling that Tom put into place was in place for two years. We had time before it, during it, and after it. Have you noticed massive changes other than constantly increasing speeds in what you can do online? No. No. Um, there, uh, back in uh, 2004, 2005, Michael Powell, a former FCC commissioner, said "You know, there are basically four freedoms or four rights that define a kind of good internet, an open internet. One was the right to access legal content. You have the, the right to access applications online that don't hurt the network or to put them online. You have the right to attach devices to the network you know, phone uh, cameras, all sorts of stuff. Which, by the way, going back to Calman Carrier, uh, that was one of the things. Bell Telephone never let anybody attach anything to the network. You know, it was a government monopoly, a government-supported monopoly. They got to call all the shots. We have the right to attach devices to the network, and we have the right to get information on our plan. Um, un- contrary to what Tom said, 98% of Americans, according to the FCC's own data, they, 98% of us have a choice of at least two ISPs offering 10 megabyte download speed. That's not great, but it's pretty good. More than enough for virtually everything most of us do, unless you're uh, doing some unauthorized surgery. Um, and if you are, I'm a libertarian, so more power to you. But uh, you probably want to upgrade to a better package. Uh, 56% of us have download speeds at 25 megabytes or higher, with uh, more than two competing ISPs working for your business, what we are seeing are more ISPs offering more service to more households at higher speeds. So there isn't a problem. In the end, what net neutrality comes down to is the FCC says, we get to regulate your business model. We're not going to tell you whether you're right or wrong, but go ahead and try, and then we'll get back to you. That is an awful, awful way to regulate any kind of business. It chokes off all sorts of innovation, and it ends the sort of permissionless innovation, which is the absolute calling card, both of the Internet as well as the sharing economy. Vote against net neutrality if you believe in free speech, innovation, and a better America.
1: Thank you, Nicolás. I'm
3: John Donvan. Round one of this
1: Intelligence Squared U.S. debate continues in just a moment. And a reminder of what's going on. We are halfway through the opening round of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate. I'm John Donvan. We have four debaters, two teams of two, fighting it out over this motion. Preserve net neutrality. All data is created equal. You've heard the first two opening statements, and now on to the third. Debating in support of the motion, Mitchell Baker, chairwoman of Mozilla. Ladies and gentlemen, Mitchell Baker.
2: So first... Who decides what we see and can do online? When we click on a link or select an app, what happens? Do we get to see the site or the application we're aiming for, or is it suddenly not available? Without net neutrality, it does not need to be available to you. That's called, in the net neutrality world, blocking. Or, when you click on that link or select an app, maybe the site appears, but it's slow. It's really slow. That, in the net neutrality world, is called discrimination. And it is the point of what we're talking about. Now, an ISP, Comcast, Verizon, AT&T, they can discriminate really on any reason. They can discriminate because they own a different product and they think they'll make more money out of it. That's an innovative business model of the type we just heard about. It is only good for the ISP. Or the ISP could discriminate against the app that you want to access because they have some sort of business arrangement, or maybe they're fighting with the company that makes your app. Or they could discriminate because they don't like the content. Any of these things are included in the discrimination or the kinds of new business models that our opposition argues for. So, one, our choice as consumers and citizens on the internet gets severely limited without net neutrality. Two... Who decides what kind of innovation and new products can be successful? That's the reverse of the topic. Say I'm an app developer and I'm developing something new. So before I can offer my product to you, I have to offer it to the ISPs. And I have to convince them or get their approval to deliver it to you. So now, as an app developer, my first customer is not you. My first customer is the ISP. Maybe it wants money. Maybe I can find money and pay them. Maybe it wants data. Like, if the ISP doesn't like my product because competing products give them data, then my product is not good for them. And they can say, I'm not going to deliver it to customers. The lack of net neutrality is great for innovation for the ISPs. Five companies, even ten if you double it in America, and it is terrible for all the rest of us. And the third question, how much discrimination do we want in the network that is the basis for all of our activities? So Comcast owns NBC. That's a lot of content. The whole point of not having net neutrality is that the ISPs can have, quote, innovative business models, unquote, that benefits the content they like and profit from. So maybe if you're a Comcast subscriber and that's your option, you'll start to see a lot of content that's good for Comcast. If you're an AT&T subscriber, they're trying to buy Time Warner, which includes CNN you might very well find your channels of information, including your news, tuned for the new business model that's profitable. Sometimes people say to me, oh, that's crazy. You know, businesses wouldn't do that. Uh, But, you know, people told me that when I first started talking about the dangers of Facebook and data. And that was nearly a decade ago. And so these sort of crazy businesses would never do that things have a way of happening. And so I urge you, I hope you find the preciousness of neutrality in our infrastructure and take action. Support net neutrality. All data is created equal. Thank you.
1: Thank you, Mitchell Baker. And that is the resolution. Preserve net neutrality. All data is created equal. And here to make his opening statement against the motion, Michael Katz, professor at UC Berkeley and former FCC chief economist. Ladies and gentlemen, Michael Katz.
4: Well, you know, advocates of net neutrality are always telling us about the great things it's intended to do. But although I vaguely remember when I first used the internet, I still remember sitting on my grandmother's knee as a small baby, and she said to me, the information superhighway to hell is paved with good intentions. (laughs) Instead of talking about intentions, I want to talk about what net neutrality really does. Now, to do that, we've got to start by dealing with three foundational myths Myth number one is it's necessary to solve problems that would otherwise be there. Now, Nick's already taking care of that one. Okay. The second myth is that net neutrality is neutral. One reason it's a myth is because different applications have different needs from the Internet. Video conferencing needs a much higher speed signal than something like email. So to say we're going to treat them equally is not to treat them equally. It's a much bigger problem for video conferencing. Now, there's a second reason that net neutrality is not neutral. We always hear this thing, oh, we need net neutrality because otherwise big, powerful companies will have fast lanes. Well, you know what? They do. Google, Facebook, Amazon, they spend literally billions of dollars because they have built private fast lanes. So what does net neutrality have to do with this? Well, it ensures that ISPs can't help small firms have higher speed access. Now, the third myth is that all data are created equal. And I want to contrast two situations. In one, you've got a bunch of kids sitting around, and they're playing Wolfenstein. Wolfenstein. Now, for those of you who are not up on your classic games, Wolfenstein is a multiplayer game that involves trying to kill Nazis with supernatural powers. The Nazis have the supernatural powers, not you. Over here, we've got a surgeon who's trying to do remote telesurgery to save somebody's life who lives in a remote area. Surgeon can't get there. According to Net Neutrality, those two are equally deserving. I don't subscribe to that view. All right, so now, those are the myths it's built on. So let's talk about some of the things it does. Well, you know, we've heard a lot of concerns about censorship. Well, frankly, net neutrality is the threat to free speech. Just ask yourself this. Who do you think is a bigger threat to access to CNN.com and WashingtonPost.com? Is it an ISP that makes money because you pay it because you want to get access to the site? Or is it the Trump administration? Competition. What you'll hear from net neutrality supporters is you've got to block competition to protect it. Well, let's think about what net neutrality would mean in other circles. Let's think about, say, Amazon or online providers. It would mean they can't provide free overnight shipping. Why? That's not fair. That's a fast lane. Let's talk about low income consumers. People say, oh, we need to have net neutrality to protect people with low incomes. Well, if a content provider, an app provider, wants to help subsidize the Internet for low-income people, uh uh-uh, violation of net neutrality. So when you think about it, look beyond what net neutrality is intended to do, and you look at what it does do, you'll see that it harms competition, it harms consumers, it limits choice. Thank you.
1: Thank you, Michael Katz. And that concludes round one of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate where our motion is... Preserve net neutrality all data is created equal. Now we move on to round two, and round two is where the debaters address one another directly by taking questions from me and from you, our live audience here in Chicago. We have two teams debating this motion, the team representing the side, Mitchell Baker and Tom Wheeler. We have heard them argue that the internet uh, represents a powerful force in life, but that it's always, almost always functioning as a local monopoly. They are arguing also that the situation is not competitive, that three quarters of U.S. households have at most one choice for speed. They talk about the uh, potential for ISPs in a world without net neutrality to block and discriminate. Uh, so that's the team arguing for the motion, some of their argument. Now, their opponents, uh, Nick Gillespie and Michael Katz, describe net neutrality as a concept f- for rather than a problem, and it's a problem that does not actually exist. They're also arguing that, in fact, data is not created equal, that the needs of video and email are quite different from one another. But I want to first get a little bit into and then quickly out of the way something of a technical question of whether there actually is this actually is a competitive landscape or whether these ISPs are functionally monopolies. The two sides had very, very different numbers.
0: When I said three-quarters of... American homes, had at most one choice for high speed. That's 25 megabits per second and above. What Nick did was, first of all, lower the speed, which to his credit, he said, oh, this is only 10, and this really he doesn't did say count. That, yes. Okay, Tom, yeah.
3: uh, to his credit. Tom, uh, when you were head of the FCC, you changed the definition of what counted as high-speed broadband. Uh, he changed it from 10 megabytes uh, downstream to 25 megabytes. Down you would, and I, I don't think I'm putting actually words... actually changed at, it from
0: 4 to yeah, 25. Right, okay. But, uh, because because yes. that's what you need in order to have high-speed service. And it's well, okay, the, okay, Tom, Tom, so, Tom um, let, let, yeah, him let him me have the floor. I, let him him this please. is
3: what I'm saying is what Tom thinks high-speed Internet is is 25 megabytes per second. But uh, 10 megabytes is actually a pretty fast connection. You can game on 10 megabytes. And what I was saying is 98%, everybody in America... Has a choice of at least two fixed ISPs for that amount.
1: You're, you're both talking about variable speeds, and so that tells us to some degree why you're coming up with different numbers. And I just wanted to get but, clarity but is, for myself it, on that. But
3: it is very important to say that the, that ISPs have a monopoly is, I think, is absolutely wrong. But th- th- there's also mobile carriers that come into. Let that me ask as Mitchell
1: well. Baker. Do you see ISPs as having a monopoly?
2: Yes, because. The question of monopoly is not whether there's two or three networks. There's what's actually available to you in your region at the time. So, yeah, and if absolutely. there's two or three... Wait, wait, Nick, let
1: her finish, please. Yeah. Are you done? Yes. So he jumped in just when you were interrupting, and then I protected you. That's and okay. All right, Can Tom? I tag
0: on to my partner? Yeah. You know, it's fascinating that for three years, we have had an open internet rule in place. Consumers have been protected. The networks have expanded their investment. The networks have had record profits and record stock prices. And if all those can happen together... That's a win-win kind of a situation. Okay, one
1: second. I want to take your point about the potential bad behavior of companies when they're, when they're not to some degree limited by net neutrality, the things that you talked about, the, the discrimination, the blocking, the uh, and, and the detrimental impact that you said that would have on innovation to Michael Katz. So you, you heard a, a sort of very negative potential scenario, and, and I think, in fact, some examples uh, that support uh, Mitchell's case would be, you know, the time AT&T decided to to block FaceTime because they didn't like people getting around their bills by using FaceTime. And they they had to stop doing it. They did stop doing that. But that's an example of the kind of thing she's talking about. I want to have you respond to that and then have Mitchell respond to what you say.
4: Here's the problem. With net neutrality, people just throw everything into it. I agree, okay, that if a discrimination is that you say this particular company, all right, be- just because of who you are, we're going to go after you. But the problem with net neutrality is it's supposed to have something completely neutral that says if you want to buy faster speed, you pay more. It doesn't matter who you are. Net neutrality makes that kind of tiered pricing, or well, I'll call it variety, it makes that illegal. I no, agree with no, you. That it you're... No, it doesn't. No, it doesn't. 12 let's,
2: pounds
0: ought to cost more than 10 pounds. Okay, but let your but partner net have neutrality
4: hope. says that you cannot buy faster access if you're a content provider. Mitchell. All right, I'm going to come
2: back to a couple conversations. One... None of us goes to the power company to ask if we can build something that plugs into a socket. Second, to your point, which is about trust, or what do we think the companies are going to do? And that I think we should trust, expect the great businesses of America to pursue their business. And without net neutrality, we are being explicit that one way to maximize your business is these innovative business models that charge Products or applications or new applications based on how profitable they are. So the fact they haven't done it yet... Well, the last few years have been under the open Internet or, uh, order. And in the earlier days, like, it wasn't as easy. The technology to inspect applications and understand it wasn't as well deployed.
1: So do you consider it kind of a foregone conclusion that given the chance to play these games, the ISPs are
3: going to play these well, games? Well,
2: without net neutrality, it is not a game. It is the law. Let's bring this,
1: in Nicola This speak.
3: parade of horribles is, at this point, hypothetical. What you're saying is that, say, Comcast does an ISP or a particular ISP, they are going to screw over anybody who competes with their own products. That would be like saying you go to Kroger or to a grocery store. And why would Kroger ever sell anybody else's product? This isn't how businesses so Nick, work. Under that and theory, cons- wait, I'm just saying. And no. customers have an ability to go elsewhere. That, under that theory,
0: Verizon and at and would not have blocked Google Wallet, which they did because they had their own competitive service.
4: <laughs> Michael but, Okay, but Tom, you know full well that, first off, even under common carrier regulation, discrimination is allowed. So this whole thing, like, that any discrimination is bad, right, you know isn't true, even under common carrier. I want to make a couple other points. We have antitrust laws. If you're using monopoly power to st- destroy competition... There's a venue to do it. Our antitrust enforcement in the United States is the envy of the world. The other thing I want to do is bring a little uh, commercial reality into this. This whole notion that, oh, we're going to discriminate against this poor startup that's trying to compete with Google or Netflix. Who are the biggest proponents, literally and figuratively again, of net neutrality? Well, it's Google and Facebook and Netflix and Amazon. Now, are we supposed to believe that they're only in this because they want to help somebody else become the next big firm and put them out of business? No. Okay. It's, Let's look at where the money is. This is, right. Mitchell's right. Like this is a us. classic. In, this is, is a
2: classic piece of what happens in the net neutrality debate is the question of transmitting information to consumers gets all mixed up with the platforms that sit on top. And so Google or Amazon or Facebook, whatever it is they do, we ought to look at it. But it is not the same question as how does data get from your ISP to you. And so net neutrality is the argument that the fundamental layer, the most physical layer, the way the bits actually move should be neutral.
1: We are in the question and answer section of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate. I'm John Donvan, your moderator. We have four debaters, two teams of two, debating this motion, preserve net neutrality, all data is created equal. Uh, front row here, yes.
2: Um, my name is Francis, thank you. Um, I have a question for the foresight. So a typical grocery store discriminates across different cereal brands, for example. So some cereal are put in the better shelf spots than others. So my question is, is that a justification for government to have a, say, cereal neutrality policy?
0: So uh, it's an excellent question. Unfortunately, um, if I don't like the cereal policy at Safeway, I can go to another grocery store. But if I don't like the decisions that are being made by my Internet service provider, I have no
3: place to go. First off, again, most people have at least two choices for a a quality connection or, you know what, use your phone then. Because your mobile carrier is separate.
1: Let me ask you a different question. I want to move on to just the the, the question of free speech. And, you know, people have written about about social movements being able to get started under the era of net neutrality. They did get started. Things like Black Lives Matter, et cetera. And the question comes up, would those social movements or any social movement from the left or from the right, would they be less liable to be able to use that platform that, that we all now take for granted?
2: I'll say there's two things. There's one, free speech for the ISPs, you know, or free speech for the movements. And two, I think you can only answer that because the, the, each ISP has to make a decision of what is the most profitable way to run its business. In some cases, shutting out all competition isn't the most profitable because people... Get upset. In other cases, you can shut out a lot of competition. So the answer is, who knows?
4: So I think this is, again, where there's just too much getting wrapped up all under the name of net neutrality. Because, look, it's a big pain. This country has a serious problem with speech. Part of it is we've got to make sure there's not limits on free speech. But part of it is we've got to figure out how to have limits on hate speech and misinformation. I agree that it's a really serious problem, and I think we've got to deal with it at the ISP level. We've got to deal with it at the platform level. But that's about what most of net neutrality is about. Far up at the aisle. Thanks. Hi there. My name is
3: Derek Jones. I'm a third-year JDMBA student here at Northwestern. Could you please talk about some examples from other countries that have similar or different net neutrality laws? Michelle, you want to take that?
2: Yeah. So I'm not... Well, not th- an expert, but di- you have a good di- sense a couple of it. different hmm. kinds of examples of whether it's discrimination or blocking. I'll, I'll take, for example, in, in Canada when an ISP was having labor disputes with its workers and ended up blocking the websites that the workers used to organize.
0: In most developed countries, the cost per megabit is lower than in the United States, and the throughput is higher because the government has taken a role.
3: The only thing I'll say to that is the the geography of the United States also plays into a factor. And if you look at places uh, like Chicago, New York, uh, San Francisco that are densely populated – and you compare them to relevant parts of Europe, pretty much everything is similar. I'm John Donvan. More questions from the audience and the
1: results of tonight's debate still to come on Intelligence Squared U.S. Intelligence Squared U.S. will be live at the Museum in Washington, D.C. next Wednesday as part of George Washington University's first-ever Women's Forum. We'll be debating this motion, Negotiations Can Denuclearize North Korea?, and ahead of that debate, best selling author and journalist Suki Kim will be joining me for a discussion about her time undercover in North Korea. And then on May 14th, we'll be back in New York for a debate on automation and democracy with Yasha Munk and Ian Bremer. To learn more or to buy tickets, go to IQ2US.org or click the link in the show notes. I I want to remind you that we are in the question and answer section of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate. I'm John Donvan, your moderator. We have four debaters, two teams of two, debating this motion, preserve net neutrality, all data is created equal. Another question?
2: Hi, my name is Nell Minow, um, and my question is that it seems to me um, a crucial difference of opinion about the facts is really the big dividing line between the two of you, and that's about how many... ISPs are available. So hypothetically, if only one ISP was available, would the antis change their mind? And hypothetically, if there were 500 available, would the pros change their mind? I love
1: that question. Thank you.
3: I, I think what, we would, uh, what I would wait to see is what is the behavior that's going on? Because uh, there's a political scientist named John Mueller who wrote a book called uh, Democracy, Socialism, and Ralph's Pretty Good Grocery. Uh, One of the points that he made in that is even regulated monopolies at times, depending, and there's a lot of things that go into this, but they have to respond as if they are in a competitive marketplace because they could either be regulated more harshly or they could be so awful that they actually generate a new way, a workaround. And you think about something like taxi commissions. Uber came around and basically routed around them and destroyed the idea of a typical taxi cab service. So it would depend. Um, but if, so maybe if it, yes. Yeah, maybe yes. If it turned out that they were discriminating, uh, blocking sites and doing things like that. Let's take it yeah. to
1: the other side. If there were 500 ISPs that we had to choose from, would you be still arguing for net neutrality?
2: Well, I have a maybe yes too. Uh-huh. And that depends on whether or not you can switch your devices or your carriers. So if, if the architecture changes and there's 500 different carriers and it's easy for me to move from one to another, maybe then I would be okay with no net neutrality. But let's, let's take the closer case for now. Say there's five. You know, one's your AT&T carrier, and it's got its content band, and that's what you can get. One's your Verizon carrier, and it's got its content band. Like, you actually can't switch. You're going to have three phones. So in the short term, there are some mobile providers. I'd still say we need net neutrality.
4: I think if you have a monopoly provider, what that means is antitrust authorities should look at it very carefully to make sure it's harming competition, I think that a lot of the baggage in net neutrality still would be a mistake.
3: Can I ask just sure. with mobile carriers, because the, and this is something over the past few years for a variety of reasons, there is massive competition against uh, you know, uh, mobile carriers. Um, do you see, uh, is T-Mobile blocking certain content because it would compete with its own content against Verizon or AT&T? I mean, wouldn't it be happening already? Tom, why don't you take this? So AT&T has said, AT&T Mobile has said that they will
0: deliver DirecTV, which they own, for free to your wireless device. But if you are a DISH subscriber, no, you've got to pay the data rates. And so what they're doing is they're using their control of the network to favor a content service that they own and disfavor a competitor. And I think you have to ask the question, is that free and fair competition?
3: Uh, well, I mean, my, my question is, though, they're not blocking it. So if it gets rolled into AT&T, your cost of the AT&T phone... They're discriminating. Phone. They're discriminating. No, but, but they're not blocking it. So, right? But... Are no, they, no, because what, what I'm are saying... Are they
0: discriminating, Nick?
3: Well, what I'm saying is... Are they discriminating? So if you buy... An, if you maybe, buy maybe
0: they're discriminating no, a
3: little bit. No, no, here. Think about it this way. If you are an AT&T customer, you get DirecTV for free. I mean, that's like kind of a good deal. Maybe that's why I'll buy an AT&T phone rather than a T-Mobile or a Verizon. I wish you guys could be more passionate about this. I mean, if if like really tell us what you think. Another question.
1: Hi, my name is Jonathan, and I have a, I wanted to address the, the security and privacy related aspects of net neutrality. Is the security impact of stripping away encryption to tell where to discriminate worth the business opportunities that would create for ISPs? I just don't understand the question. Am I? Yeah. No, no, no. But yeah. maybe the experts here do.
2: Yeah, so the question is, how is it that the ISP knows what the application is? Like, well, if it's going to discriminate oh, or... Oh, how could it
1: discriminate without...
2: How, how does it know? How does it know? So your ISP now... Uh-huh. Um, in the early days, it was harder to know. There's a technology or a set of technologies generally called deep packet inspection. Since you
1: know the answer to this, what this right. question means, is it relevant to the debate we're having about whether net neutrality should be preserved or not? As a kind of a side issue, because I'd rather uh, move on if it is.
2: I, I would say the the, the question. There's, there's a related but separate question of can the ISPs do all this deep packet inspection? But no, I would say no. If I could answer uh, this okay.
4: question, Well, actually, like, you, I may say, can I give a non-technical security, I mean,
2: know, It would be not be good.
1: Uh, front, the very front row uh, again on the stage.
0: My name's August Hutchinson, interloper from University of Chicago. <laughs> And uh, my question is for both sides. Um, Since the topic of content discrimination and free speech has come up, um, I was hoping both sides could speak to um,
4: the potential First Amendment and legal implications um, of net neutrality. So I don't... Sorry, I just... I have to ask a lawyer. I just don't have um, views okay. on the issue of commercial free speech and whether it's impinging on the ISPs All right. or not. I
1: mean, it, it, it's perfectly respectable to say, I actually don't know that topic, so I'm going to pass. And I respect that rather than chewing up a lot of time blathering. So thank you. I respect that. <laughs> <laughs> Let's take it to the other side if you'd like to, if there, is, if there is an answer.
0: We addressed this once before. In cable television, interestingly enough, the folks who have the cable side of the broadband pipe and... The government said to them, you must carry the local TV station to make sure that there is a diversity of voices and economic underpinning so that there can be this kind of First Amendment uh, expression. Net neutrality says that you have to have the same kinds of protections for expressions such as streaming a local newscast. So wait, I'm sorry.
4: I said I'm not a lawyer, but I do know this much about the Constitution. The First Amendment is about government blocking government restriction of free speech. The First Amendment says nothing about whether an ISP as a private entity can do it. So that's, it's not a First Amendment issue. It may, it may be well, a free well, speech issue, but it's not a First Amendment issue. Mitchell, Mitchell, I was gentlemen. going to
2: say there are real issues of what is a public space. And are there public spaces and commercial spaces and well, our no, airports? So, but, like, to say there's then, no issue is probably a little To the
3: extent that we're talking about that, I, I do space. think, you know, I see net neutrality as a, a kind of uh, part of, uh, uh, of an attack on free speech. Because what, what it is doing, it is saying that the government will be more involved in controlling and regulating what happens, the government has a very bad record, the FCC in particular, has a very bad record of allowing free speech. The government is not interested in free speech, the government is interested in controlling speech. The Communications Decency Act from the mid-90s, uh, one, of, one of the great things in that which immunized uh, uh, websites and publishers online from uh, getting in trouble for things that their commenter said or things that got posted to them, that is being weakened. That was just weakened by a law that is supposed to stop sex trafficking. We are in a a low-grade war against the the First Amendment. Um, And any time the government says, we need to step in in order to protect speech, uh, we have to protect you against hate speech, we have to protect you against this, that, or the other thing, obscenity, you should be very scared. And net neutrality plays into that. By giving the government in the form of the FCC more power to say, you can do this or this. But we get to pick.
1: And that concludes round two of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate, where our motion is preserve net neutrality. All data is created equal. And now we move on to round three. Round three are brief closing statements by each debater in turn. Speaking in support of the motion in his closing statement, Tom Wheeler former chairman of the FCC.
0: Thank you very much, John, and um, our worthy opponents. Uh, This has been fun, but with all due respect, I don't think that you have made your case. Uh, (laughs) The reality is that networks uh, have big power and consumers have little choice. America demands first-rate Internet service. We've had three years of success under the open internet rule, where the companies prospered and consumers prospered. Ray that's it. The facts do speak for themselves. But I want to tell you the reason we deal with policy is that policy is about people. And one of the things that I learned when I was at the Commission, because I got to deal with a lot of people on this issue, and the innovators that would come to me and say, we need to have open access so we can reach the market with our new ideas. The teachers who would come to me and say, our students need to be able to reach the world of innovation, the world of information. The artisans, like the ladies who make handicrafts to support their family and sell them on Etsy, they all had the same message. We could be crushed by the big dogs coming in, paying cash to get preferential treatment. We need equality of opportunity, which is based on equality of access. And that's why we urge you to join the 83% of Americans who in a recent poll said they support net neutrality and oppose its repeal. Thank you. Thank you, Tom Wheeler.
1: Again, that motion is preserve net neutrality. All data is created equal. Here making his closing against the motion, Nick Gillespie, editor-at-large
3: of I, I, You know, I, I have to say Tom's heart-wrenching story really changed my mind that, you know, women, you know, and I'm, I'm assuming that they're developmentally challenged or they have rickets and they're knitting little baby booties, and the only thing keeping them alive is net neutrality, which... <laughs> has not existed for virtually all of the Internet's life. I mean, that's, it's, it's a nice story, but it's ridiculous. Uh, as, and it's also ridiculous to say there are ISPs who are big ogres, and then there's just all of us. And we have no power. They have all the power because there are the people that my, Michael was talking about. There's Amazon, there's Facebook, there's Twitter, there's YouTube. We have a very good functioning Internet. And it's getting better all of the time. It's got better before there was open Internet. It's getting better since then. I want to remind you that you know what Ajit Pai said, net neutrality is a solution that won't work to a problem that doesn't exist. The solutions that gets proffered by it is always to take free things away from people. So if you were on T-Mobile and you had binge on that was considered a violation of net neutrality. Why should you get data that is not counted against your monthly cap? So let me put it this way supporters of net neutrality constantly point to zero rated plans as problematic. If you think the government is going to guarantee better quality, better service, and free speech, um, I think I'm moving to Canada. Thank you very much. Thank you, Nick Gillespie. The motion again preserve net neutrality. All data is created equal,
1: and here making her closing statement in support of the motion, Mitchell Baker, Chairwoman of Mozilla.
2: You know, Mozilla and our work in Firefox would not be here without net neutrality. We first built Firefox in two thousand four as a nonprofit. By definition, our goal is not maximizing revenue, not for ourselves, not for the ISPs, not for anyone else. We were building a product everyone knew was irrelevant and we were challenging the tech giant of its time, Microsoft, which was essentially Google, Apple, Amazon, all rolled into one. We were open source, which was very freaky at its time. We had no money for marketing. We had no money for distribution. We were not anyone's model of an attractive business partner. But we had one thing going for us, along with our product. We had the open Internet. We were able to offer our product, and we were able to make it fast, which is more important than you would ever think in trying to get a product adopted. And we were able to make our download fast without worrying about what ISPs around the world would decide and whether their delivery practices would ruin our product. Without the open Internet, we wouldn't have had a chance. And the opportunity of the open internet should be for all of us. And so we urge you support the motion, preserve net neutrality. Thank you.
1: Thank you, Mitchell Baker. And that is the motion, preserve net neutrality, all data is created equal. And here to make his closing argument against this motion, Michael Katz, professor at UC Berkeley and former FCC chief
4: economist. So first off, I want to start by thanking uh, Tom and Mitchell. It really has been a privilege um, to debate with you. There's certainly been disagreement, but this, it really has been an honor. Now, this is my first time doing an Intelligence Square debate. And so the organizer told me, look, the way you finish, the way you win is you got to ask people, in my case, you got to vote against the motion. Ask everyone to vote against it. Well, I'm not going to ask you all to vote against it, because I'm an economist, and I think you should respect your preferences. Okay? <laughs> so look, here's the thing. Some of you should vote for the resolution. If you believe the best way to protect freedom of speech is to give Donald Trump more power over the Internet and the media's access, then vote for the resolution. Okay, if you believe the best way to protect competition is to make it illegal to compete by offering your customers a better product and a better deal, again, vote for the resolution. If you think that the way to level the playing field is to make sure that the very largest, the richest companies the world has ever seen should be able to have preferential access because they can afford to build their own internet, then again, vote for the resolution. Okay? If you believe that apps and content providers should not be allowed to try to subsidize access for low-income consumers, again, it's clear, vote for the resolution. Okay? And if you believe that a good multiplayer shooting gaming experience is as important, maybe more important, than uh, successful telesurgery, then again, vote for the resolution. But here's the thing. I hope there's some others in the room still. Okay? If you believe in free speech, and you believe in competition, and you believe in consumer choice. And most importantly, if you believe that saving a real life is more important than killing a virtual Nazi, then you should vote against the resolution. (laughs) Thank you. Michael Katz. Uh, You all really came here to compete,
1: and uh, that was really obvious and we really appreciate that but we mostly appreciate how you did it with respect and, 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 and even what you, you're saying, Michael what an honor it was to debate these opponents that's exactly the spirit we're trying to capture so I want to thank all of you for the spirit in which you did this I have the results Again, the way this works, it's the difference between the first and the second vote. The team whose numbers have gone up the most in percentage points will be declared our winner. Again, the motion is this, preserve net neutrality, all data is created equal. Before the motion, in polling the live audience here in Chicago, 60% agreed with the motion, 23% were against, 17% were undecided. Again, those are the first results. In the second vote, the team arguing for the motion, preserve net neutrality, all data is created equal. Their first vote was 60%. Their second vote was 60%. They stayed the same. Let's see how the against side did. Their first vote was 23%. Their second vote, 31%. They went up 8 percentage points. That is enough. It means the team arguing against the motion, preserve net neutrality, is our winner. Our congratulations to them. Thank you for me, John Donvan, and Intelligence Squared US. We'll see you next time. Thank you, Chicago. Thank you, Northwestern. This Intelligence Squared U.S. debate was held in front of a live audience at the Northwestern Pritzker School of Law in Chicago and was produced in partnership with the Newt and Joe Minow Debate Series. Robert Rosenkrantz is our chairman. Claya Chang is chief operating officer. Leah Mathow is vice president of programming. Shay O'Mara is manager of editorial operations. Taylor Quimby and Rob Christensen are the radio producers. Damon Whittemore is the audio engineer, and I'm your host, John Donvan. You can now stream all of our debates on demand on Apple TV and Roku devices with the IQ2US app. For more information or to purchase tickets to future events, visit IQ2US.org. These debates are made possible by generous contributions from listeners like you and with support from David A. Coulter, Robert Epstein, Christopher W. Johnson Charitable Trust, Ilona Namath and Alan Quasha, George L. Orstrom Jr. Foundation, Jerry Orstrom, Kelly Posner Gustenhaber, the Rosencrantz Foundation, the Mortimer D. Sackler Foundation, Jennifer and Philippe Selendi, the Paul E. Singer Foundation, Edward Stern and Stephanie Rhine, and Emily and Antoine Van Actmel. From Intelligence Squared U.S. and from me, John Donvan, thanks to all of you. One last thing, if you don't mind, we are now asking for your help. When you give Intelligence Squared U.S. five stars on Apple Podcasts or Google Play, you help other people find our podcast. So if you enjoy our debates, please rate and review us.